0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gergis. The Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Defense says military personnel should follow proper procedures for handling equipment with sensitive information when withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. The IG office says wiping sensitive health data is crucial to securing those records. The Department of Health and Human Services will require all public facing healthcare workers to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The mandate will affect 25,000 employees in the department. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra says the department's number one goal is the health and safety of the American public. The Department of Homeland Security will consider implementing a new program to protect sensitive information that's stored on contractor networks. This Pathfinder assessment is similar to the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification or CMMC that the Defense Department created. At his 20th day in office president biden has submitted 389 nominations that require senate confirmation that still leaves a number of important positions including director for the office of management and budget vacant max Dyer is president and ceo of the partnership for public service max welcome to the program thank you so much for having me here so your organization has been tracking nominations and confirmations President Biden's 200th day in office was on Monday. How's he doing with respect to filling those positions?
0: So the answer is that uh, relative to past presidents, he's pretty much on par. Uh, Certainly on the nomination side, he is uh, in the same ballpark as prior presidents have been ahead of uh, uh, former President Trump, but um, in the same ballpark as uh, presidents Obama and Bush. Um, but when it comes to confirmation, uh, there are fewer of those that he has. Um, and that's what is comparing to, to the near past. The reality is, comparing to what has to be done, um, you know, President Bush has a very, very long ways to go, as has all other presidents at this stage in their administration, because we have a system that is frankly just not working.
1: Well, Max, what's the holdup? Is the problem on the Senate side or the administration side?
0: So the answer is it's ultimately all the above. Uh, The reality is you have 1200 Senate confirmed positions and the Senate is really too small of a pipe to be able to manage uh, all that throughput. And as I indicated earlier, um, no modern president has actually had their team on the field um, when the game started. Uh, It's really very, very uh, concerning in a world in which there's so many different threats um, that it takes so long, no matter how hard you work at it, to actually get your team and uh, on the field um, at, at, the, at the moment in which the game begins on January 20th. So, um, you know, you think about it, uh, presidents have typically taken well over a year to get their core leadership team in place. And you see um, in prior administrations, you know, upwards of uh, almost, you know, 40% of the Full Senate conf, uh, confirmed positions, not even seeing nominees for two years. It, it's a it's a broken system that there's really not enough attention being paid to.
1: Well, I want to ask you about the system and your recommendations for it. But before, can you give us some examples of key positions that still need nominees?
0: Well, you you uh, led off, I think, with probably the most prominent example of that is the, you know, director of the Office of Management and Budget. You know, OMB is the Nerve center of our government. We have very, very little in the way of central enterprise function in our government. OMB is it, it's the main, main place to be. And we don't still have an OMB director. You know, obviously, there are other positions like the uh, commissioner of the FDA in today's world, which are obviously mm-hmm. vital. But <clears throat> the reality is that <clears throat> all these jobs are very important. And we are missing uh, many of them. We really have just a, a small number that you actually have confirmed leadership in place. And none of us should find that acceptable.
1: And and tons of uh, ambassadorships as well. Max, how do these vacancies impact agency missions and the workforce?
0: Well, to be very clear, like the workforce is mission committed and they're doing their very best. And the people who are in the acting roles, um, they are typically extremely capable individuals. For me, the metaphor is the substitute teacher. We've all had substitute teachers in our lives and they could be amazing educators. The challenge though, is that um, they know that they're they're their day-to-day. They're not going to take on the long-term problems. Um, They're not going to take on the big problems. And just to be very frank about it, they get no respect. Uh, And so that's a little bit of what we have right now. Many, many people who are trying their best, who may be very, very capable, but they're positionally limited in what they can do because they're in an acting role. And what that fundamentally means is that the big challenging problems don't get addressed in the way that they need to. And you see it in all corners of our government. You mentioned ambassadors. Certainly that's true with respect to foreign policy. You hear lots of other countries talking about not having the right counterparties to deal with. They're gonna be less willing to invest in relationships with people that they don't see as long-term leaders. Uh, And that's true domestically as well, whether it's the COVID response, the economic revitalization, we need the. Uh, climate issues, the racial equity issues. I mean, we have a host of problems. We need the very best from our government, and then we need the best leaders who are in place in order to be able to deal with all those problems. So
1: Max, let's talk about your recommendations then. You talked about the system is broken. How can the political appointment system be better streamlined and reformed?
0: So uh, again, the response is pretty pretty easy in terms of what you you need to do conceptually. Uh, and that is reduce the number of Senate confirmed positions. You have 1200 of them, that's way too many. Um, we saw actually an important effort in 2011 uh, to reduce the number of Senate confirmed positions. And they actually, the Congress did that reduced by about 160 some odd positions. I would describe that as a slice of bread, not 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 the loaf or half a loaf. Um, and we need to do it again, but we need to do it in a, in a much more aggressive manner. And I think that uh, we've issued a report that lays out an approach that makes sense. Certainly, um, you know, we believe that many of those positions could be career positions. An example of that would be you know, what's going on at the Department of Energy, where uh, the leadership for their cyber position for ensuring safety in our energy infrastructure, the secretary there wants to make sure that is a career position. When you need continuity of attention, when you have management positions, you should have career leadership.
1: All right, Maxwell, we'll continue to watch those appointments and confirmations as they move through the system. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Coming next, an artificial intelligence boost for military operations. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the AI projects the Pentagon will start funding. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he will commit $1.5 billion to the Pentagon's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, or JAKE. JAIC. The JAKE's mission is to accelerate AI adoption to serve military operations. Bob Work is co chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. He's former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Bob, welcome to the program. How does AI improve things like? effectiveness, uh, agility, readiness for the military?
2: Well, I'm gonna borrow from our Chinese competitors. They believe we're moving into a new era of what they refer to as intelligentized warfare with artificial intelligence at its core, with big data, cloud computing, the internet of things. And what it's going to really wind up being is make everything more effective because the artificial intelligence will be providing information to humans that they might not otherwise not have and make them more effective decision makers at all levels in all positions.
1: So why do you think this funding commitment from Secretary Austin is significant?
2: Well it sets the baseline for the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Um, They have a budget of $300 million a year over five years of the Future Years Defense Program, which ends up with the $1.5 billion you mentioned. And that money is going to provide the foundation necessary to make the Department of Defense a world-class AI competitor. Uh, It will do things such as curating training data, which will be used to train algorithms. It will be used to develop the platform costs to have what is called a DevSecOps, development security ops. It's an environment to create the algorithms in a safe way. It's going to pay for the test and evaluation activities for AI tools and systems. It's going to do what is referred to as responsible AI activities, such as human systems integration, Uh, validation and verification of these AI tools, and most importantly, it's going to start funding what is called the ADA, the AI and Data Accelerator, which is a big uh, move on the department's part uh, to get these applications out to the regional combatant commanders who, as you know, control all military forces in their regions.
1: Well, you know, a, a big requirement of artificial intelligence is training and development data, as you mentioned the data. What is the Pentagon's plan to collect those, that massive amount of data and store it securely?
2: The Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, uh, recently sent out a memo uh, establishing the chief data officer and uh, made several data decrees. And essentially what it says is all data in the Department of Defense belongs to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Everyone will contribute their data regardless of what is happening. The department will curate it, will use it to make everyone smarter at all levels, whatever they're doing, whether it's deciding how many airplanes to buy or they're doing operational problems. So the data is absolutely key. Data trains the algorithms. The algorithms run on hardware in systems. And from this hardware, you have applications. So it's the combination of the data, the algorithms, the hardware, and the applications where you see the improvement in productivity and effectiveness across the department.
1: And Bob, what do you see as the biggest barriers to fielding artificial intelligence systems in the military?
2: Well, the first thing is just funding, Uh, you know, everything is competing for a very constrained top line, so we will go as fast as the funding allows. Secondly, we have to develop trust with these AI systems. The operators have to trust them before they start to rely on them and use them. So there's going to be a period of time where we figure out how to do test and evaluation of the systems to establish trust, and then we have to do validation and verification of the systems uh, so that the operators know how they're going to perform. Uh, and that takes time. So you know, building trust is going to be the most important part, uh, will be the big determinant factor on how fast the Department of Defense pursues AI activities.
1: Can you tell us some of the key applications of AI and how the Pentagon can prioritize those projects?
2: Well, the way I like to say this, Mimi, is there are two big buckets. One we refer to as human-machine collaboration. This is where the AI is providing information to a human to allow them to make better, more relevant, and faster decisions. So you're seeing things like, artificial intelligence applications that will create courses of action for a human commander to consider. And they'll do it very quickly. The human commander will be able to uh, look at them and say, yes, this looks good. I'm gonna try this one. Or the commander can say, I don't like any of these courses of action. I'd like to see some more. You can see it in predictive maintenance. We're doing it in readiness. It helps us say, hey, this turbine is going to, need maintenance at this time or it will break and it will help us be more ready so human machine collaboration is all kind of virtual in software designed to help humans and then there's autonomy in motion which is all of the unmanned systems unmanned aerial systems unmanned ground vehicles unmanned surface vehicles on the surface of the ocean unmanned underwater vehicles and you're going to see just an big explosion of all of these types of systems working in concert with manned platforms to take on the toughest problems.
1: Well, Bob, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice talking to you. Up next, the Navy's divest to invest plan straight ahead on Government Matters. That plans implications for the future of naval power. All of our episodes are on our website at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Navy's new Divest to Invest plan aims to alleviate budget challenges by reallocating funds, but that plan does not guarantee the Navy will save money, according to Seth Cropsey. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and former deputy undersecretary of the Navy. He's writing about the danger of shrinking American naval power in the Wall Street Journal. Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mary. So when the Navy says Divest to Invest, what do they plan to divest of? And what do they plan to invest in?
3: Uh, they plan to divest uh, of uh, large surface combatants, some smaller ones, but may- mainly large ships, and uh, they plan to invest in uh, smaller ships and more numerous ones for the purpose of distributing lethality, which is to have, which is to say, to make a fleet that is composed of more ships that are smaller, but are highly capable uh, of combat. Seth, what's the- and That And that complicate, and that is intended to complicate the, uh, an, an, an enemy's problem, um, and- that's uh, a simple statement of what of, of what the divest to invest.
1: So, w- what about the timeline, Seth, for divesting of these older, larger ships and then investing in the newer ships? Is the industrial base able to produce the new ones quickly enough?
3: Well, the timeline is to accomplish the divestiture uh, in about a half a decade, in about five years or a little bit more, uh, and. To begin bringing on the the smaller vessels, in other words, changing the way the f- the shape of the fleet, at about the same time that the divestiture is complete, roughly the same time.
1: And do you but think that do you think that that will actually possible. happen? Do you think it's possible?
3: Uh, I think it, that based on the track record, uh, Navy's track record and its defense contractors' track record of bringing ships to the it's unlikely.
1: What's the risk then to the mission if there is a gap? If we've decommissioned some and the new ones aren't ready to come on?
3: Well, then we're inviting uh, inviting challenges, perhaps inviting an, an attack uh, specifically in the uh, in regard to Taiwan. And that is a, a subject that's been addressed by the former commander of the United States Indo-Pacific Command when he spoke to Congress and told them in March that there was a reasonable chance that China would attack Taiwan within the next five to six years. And those that idea was... Uh, repeated, recapitulated by the current, by his relief, the current commander of the Indo-Pacific fleet, uh, Admiral Aquilino.
1: So then what do you suggest as far as um, the Navy being able to decommission the older, larger ships, getting those newer ships in without having that gap that would invite a possible challenge from China?
3: Slow down the decommission. And the ships that are left in the Navy uh, add uh, add power to them, combat power to them in the form of more uh, vertical launch system cells uh, and uh, keep the fleet robust and able to uh, meet its commitments until the newer ships start to arrive. In other words, don't gap it. Uh, that gap is a dangerous one, and it comes precisely within the five to six years get five to six year time period that both the departing and the incoming commanders of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Fleet warned of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. That's very serious.
1: But isn't there a, a, a cost to keeping those older ships and maintaining them in the near term?
3: There is a huge cost to a much greater cost to uh, if China is able successfully to seize Taiwan.
1: So what are you suggesting as far as, um, you know, you said to make sure that there's no gap. What about things like unmanned vehicles? Do you do you recommend that that we maybe expedite the production of those?
3: No, I think the Navy is I think the Navy is perfectly correct. In looking to unmanned vehicles as part of the the fleet in the future uh, that will allow the Navy to carry out its global commitments, there's no doubt about that. The question is, how soon, and how and how soon will how soon will those ships be available, and how soon can they be incorporated into the Navy? Um, so you know you don't just Buy something new and put it at sea and expect everything is going to work. You have to it takes a lot of planning and a lot of exercising and training uh, and coordination and all kinds of things uh, before and uh, you know a vessel that is as radically new as an unmanned surface vehicle uh, can be incorporated into the fleet and be effective as a as a combatant.
1: All right, well, Seth, I appreciate your perspective on that. Thanks very much for being on the program.
3: Thanks, sweetie.
1: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And we want to hear what you think of the program or any of the topics we discuss. Find us on social media and send us your comments. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to the Government Matters YouTube channel. I'm back in two minutes.